Well, good morning, family. I invite you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open to the book of Romans and to chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Just follow along as I read the, the first verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I remember many years ago I was reading a, some magazine and uh, there was a picture there, a cartoon, and, and in the cartoon there was this picture of a, a vast temple, a Mayan-type temple, and then there were these two big burly guys who were dragging some young skinny guy up the steps of this big temple to an altar where apparently he was about to lose his life. Over in the side, in the corner of the, of the picture, there are two, two guys with these big headdresses. They are apparently chiefs. And they're watching the scene there and one chief says to the other, you know, young people just don't seem to believe in much anymore. <laughs> you know, it, it's easy to criticize someone's commitment when you're not the one who's called on to sacrifice. Here in this verse that we just read from Romans 12, however, we're all on equal footing. Every one of us is in the crosshairs, at least if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says to you and me, he calls us to the same commitment to offer our bodies, ourselves, as living sacrifices. This morning as we begin a new study, as we start here in this, in this verse, let me just begin by unpacking this little verse here just a moment. He calls us to be a living sacrifice, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. First, a sacrifice means that you are giving up your life. A living sacrifice means that you don't give up your life by jumping into a burning volcano or by setting yourself on fire or having your head cut off. A living sacrifice means you're giving up your life but you're doing it by changing the way you live. And he says, what does this life look like? It's the life of a living sacrifice is to live a life that is holy. That means it's set apart for God. And it's acceptable. That means that it is a life that is pleasing to God. And Paul continues and he says that this life, a life of sacrifice, giving up your life to live Holy for God and pleasing to God, it is, he says, your spiritual worship. There's two words in the Greek there to call our attention to. One is the word uh, that means service here or worship. And the other is a word in Greek, it's logikon, from which we get the our English word logic. In other words, it's what is logical, what is reasonable, what is rational. 
And so what he's saying is that living a life of sacrifice, a life that is holy, set apart for, for God and acceptable, pleasing to God, it is the reasonable, the logical thing to do in our worship of God. And that should cause us to ask a question, why in the world is that a rational, logical thing to do? Because, quite frankly, to most of us, being a sacrifice is a very illogical thing to do. It certainly is not a, a normal thing to do. It's certainly not something that we would think would be something we would do willingly. We would be more like the guy, the guy those big burly guys are hauling up to the altar, kicking and screaming. But he says, he calls us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. The answer to why is found back in the first part of that verse that I read. Go back to verse 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. He says it's a logical response in view of the mercies of God. And what Paul is doing is he's reflecting back and calling our attention back to everything that has happened in the book of Romans up till this point here in chapter 12, verse 1. Now, some of you are around earlier this year. Uh, in, in January and February, we spent a number of weeks in, in Romans chapters 3, 4, and 5. And so some of what I'm about to say is going to sound a little familiar if you're around at that time. But what I want to do is very quickly just to go back and give us a quick overview, hit some of the high spots of God's mercies that are on brilliant display in Romans chapters 1 through 11. There's a lot, so I can't do them all, but I'm just going to hit a few. You see, you begin with Romans in, in chapters 1 through 3. And the, the picture that is painted is that you and I are all of us sinners. We are guilty, helpless, hopeless, and we are condemned because we are sinners. Then, Paul says in Romans, God stepped in. God stepped in and through the death of Jesus Christ, He saved us by His mercy and by His grace alone. Not because of any inherent value that we have, not because of any goodness that we have in us, and not certainly because of any good works that we have done, but solely because of His grace and His mercy, God saved us through the death of Jesus Christ. All we had to do, and in fact, Paul makes the very clear point, all we could do is receive this gift of grace by faith in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you've received Jesus Christ, you've trusted Him by faith as your Savior, then the book of Romans goes on to say, you have received and I have received some marvelous gifts. We've received the gift of forgiveness from sin's guilt. We've received the gift of rescue from sin's penalty. We've received the gift of freedom from sin's power. We've been reconciled into a relationship with God. And we've been then adopted as sons of God, children of God. And so we have become fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. 
inheriting a glorious and an eternal destiny. We have, Romans goes on to say, the Spirit of God indwelling in us and praying for us. And we have the Son of God interceding for us. And we have the power of God working for us, working for our good. And we have the love of God protecting us and guaranteeing all of these blessings for us. And that's just some of the highlights of what God's blessings and mercies that He's given us through Jesus Christ. And so, in light of all that, what should our response be? Paul says here in verse 1 of chapter 12, the only logical, the only sensible, the only reasonable way to respond to that and to honor God is to give up, to offer up my life as a living sacrifice to live for Jesus Christ. What Paul says here in in that is really nothing new. Matter of fact, it is exactly what Jesus called every believer Everyone who believed and trusted in Him, it's what He called them to do. Jesus just used the different words. He said, follow Me. It's what He said to the disciples when He called them. He said, follow Me. It's what He says, Matthew chapter 10, verse 38, anyone who does not take up his cross and follow Me is not worthy of Me. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, if anyone would come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and Follow me. John chapter 12, verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Many times Jesus said, Follow me. If you trust me, if you believe me, follow me. The mission that Jesus left us with when he, after the resurrection, when he ascended to heaven before he, he left, as he gathered the disciples together, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, he said, that the mission that we have is to go and make disciples of all nations. The job that He has left us to do is to go and call others to become followers. That's another word for disciple. To become followers of Jesus Christ. So what Jesus Christ calls us to do as believers in Him is to give up our lives and to follow Him. To deny ourselves, as He said, and follow Him. And then the mission is, as we follow Christ, we are to be out calling others and making others, not by force, but by persuasion, to be be followers of Jesus Christ. So he really says the same thing as what Paul has said here in Romans chapter 12.1. In view of God's mercy, the only sensible, logical, reasonable thing to do is to be a follower of Jesus Christ, giving up my life to live for Him. Now, if that's what we're supposed to be as believers, if that's what we're called to be as believers, and if that's what we're called to do is to go make other disciples, then the question arises, what does a disciple, what does a follower of Jesus look like? If the aim is to live for Him, To be a disciple, if the mission is to make disciples, what do disciples, what do followers of Jesus look like? 
The answer to that is what we're going to see today and in fact over the next three weeks after today as we go through the rest of Romans chapter 12. What we will see here in this text is that we will take notice of four four essential activities that every follower of Jesus should be engaged in. We're calling them the next steps. And then the next steps, whether you are a brand new believer in Jesus Christ or whether you've been a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ for 80 years, these next steps are the same. It's like next steps in marching. You know, it's one, two, three, four, hut, two, three, four. You keep doing the same thing because they're the next steps. Today we're looking here in the second verse of chapter 12 of Romans to find the first of these four essential activities, first of these things that we are to be doing as a follower, as a believer in Jesus Christ. Verse 2, chapter 12 of Romans. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The essence of this verse, if I may summarize it in a word that's not in the verse, but the essence of this verse is change and growth. God desires to transform you and to transform me that we, if we live as Jesus' followers, as we, if we live as living sacrifices, that we will be growing, that we will be transformed and becoming what that is what God desires for us to be. We find what God desires for us to be back in chapter 8 of Romans, verse 29, where God says that He has, as believers, He has predestined us to be conformed to the image of His dear Son. The destiny that God desires and has planned and is predestined for every one of us who is a believer in Jesus Christ is to change us, to transform us, to look like Jesus. There are four things in this verse about this transformation. This verse tells us what we're not to do in this process of growth and transformation. It tells us what we are to do and it tells us how to do it and it tells us what will result from it. So if we're going to be growing, if we're going to be changing and becoming like Jesus, if we're going to be living as living sacrifices, four things in the transformation that is this growth. First, he says what not to do. He says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to the world. There's a great tendency for me and for a lot of Christians and probably for you too, there's a great tendency for us to be like Jell-O. Jell-O Christians. Jell-O, we all know, will will match anything or conform to anything that's poured into. So they sell these little Jell-O molds and then you pour Jell-O into them and then you stick it in the refrigerator for a little bit and then you pull it out and you dump them out and you got all these little Jell-O thingies, jiggler things, right? Jell-O takes the shape of whatever it's poured into. 
And it's so easy for you and me as we live here in this world that it's easy for us to start to become like the world. We start to look like the world, talk like the world, act like the world, think like the world. We tend to love what the world loves, value what the world values, laugh at what the world laughs at. That's fine for Jello, but it's not good for us. God says about our tendency to conform to the thinking and the values and the behaviors of the world, God says, don't go there. See, ever since sin came into the human race, man's natural tendencies have been corrupted. Man's thought processes are fatally flawed. As Proverbs 14.12 says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. So the first step for us in growing and transforming into what God desires us to be is understanding that we must not allow ourselves to be molded and conformed to the, quote, normal patterns of thinking, the, quote, normal patterns of living, in this world around us. Because of what God has done for us and because of who we are in Christ, we're called to go on a different path. So our verse goes on. Now that it's told us what it's not to do, it goes on to tell us what we are to do. It says, but be transformed. What we are to do is be transformed. Four things I notice about this transformation. The first thing is that it is a total transformation. In the the word that's here in the Greek for transformation or be transformed is a word that if you saw it, and even though you don't speak Greek, you would know that word. It's the word metamorphosis. A metamorphosis is not just a little, a little, uh, you know, paint job. A metamorphosis isn't rearranging the furniture. A metamorphosis is not just a little updating. A metamorphosis is a total change, a total makeover. Of course, one of the best illustrations of that is a caterpillar. We've all got the plants out in the last couple of weeks, so we've got the garden planted and we've got the flowers out there, and now it'll just be a few more weeks before we'll find the caterpillars. The caterpillars will look at a caterpillar. If you ever just look at one, you go, whoa. <laughs> Little caterpillar just crawling along, moseying along, because that's about the best they can do. And you look at a caterpillar and you'd say, you know what, the one thing that thing will never do is it'll never fly unless I fling it across the yard. But you, you all, we know, because you had science class, we know that caterpillars were born to fly. But a caterpillar, aerodynamically, it's impossible. Again, unless we fling it. <laughs> but along comes metamorphosis, and the caterpillar becomes a butterfly. It doesn't cease being the same creature. It's still the same creature, but it's, Yet a totally something totally different, radically transformed. And the butterfly flies. What the Scripture is telling us is that as believers in Jesus Christ, 
we have a new identity and we have a glorious and eternal destiny. Romans chapter 8 talks about that. We don't have time to go there, but you go look back there sometime and read through Romans chapter 8 and what you realize, we have a glorious destiny ahead of us. The final transformation into this destiny of glory will not be complete and won't be realized until we are in heaven in the presence of Jesus Christ. But the Bible tells us that even though that's going to be the the ultimate and the final realization of it, the reality is that right this minute we are already a new creature. If anyone is in Christ, Corinthians tells us, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All the new, as it were, spiritual DNA for the new us is already there. And God is already and right now, He is in the process of metamorphosizing, if that's a word, us. Changing us and transforming us into the destiny which is to be conformed to the image of His dear Son. To be made like Christ in our character to be made like Christ, to share in His glory, to be made like Christ, to share in His inheritance. Three more things in this little verse about our transformation. Important little truths. Not only is it something that is coming, it's total transformation. Also important to recognize that it's this Transformation is a process. It's something that is already at work in us. God is doing in us. But this word uh, could be translated or would literally be translated like this. Keep on being transformed. It's something that began the moment we became a believer in Jesus Christ and it's something that is going to continue and needs to continue all the way up until the day when we are called home, either by the trumpet call of God or through death. The final product won't be evident until then, but He's at work now. We need to keep growing and transforming until we get to heaven. The results are not instantaneous, but how many of you like instantaneous things? That's why we have microwaves, right? Why we have, that's why we have, we're always looking for computers that are faster, phones that are faster, cars that are faster. We want everything faster because we want everything now. And I am that way. And I am impatient. And the very thought that this is a process that's going to be a lifelong thing of growing and changing little by little until finally we get there, that just, I find that wearisome. I find that difficult find it frustrating, but it's a process. And so, brothers and sisters, don't give up. Hang in there because we are works in process. There's another important truth about this transformation. Not only is it a process, but notice this verb. Those of you who are English scholars, and I know at least one as I look out, uh, if you're an English scholar, you notice this verb, even in English, it is what is called a passive verb. It's in the passive. It, that means that it's, it's not something that we do, but something that is done to us. It doesn't say, transform yourself. It says, 
what? Be transformed. Something that is done to us. Well, who's doing it? Well, the answer is, this is church, so the answer is God, Jesus, okay? <laughs> and that's the facts. This, this transformation is something God is doing. On our own, we can make some changes and improvements in our lives. We can change some behaviors. We can kick some habits. We can fix some problems. We can do that on our own, but this transformation, this kind of transformation, this metamorphosis that God intends for us is not something we can do on our own. It requires the power of God working in us. It's a work of God. So it's a process. It's also something that God does in us. But there's another thing about this very word, this, this command. Be, well, I just said it. It's a command. This be transformed is a command. You'll notice it's an imperative. You be transformed. It's a command. And that seems like kind of an oxymoron. It seems like a contradiction. How can something be done to us, but yet it's a command for us to do? Is it something God does or is it something we do? And the answer is yes. Absolutely. It is something God does, but it, the very fact that it's a command means that there is something here that we have a choice in and something that we have a responsibility to do. Well, if it's God's work, then how do I have a part in it? That's a great question, and I'd say there's a two-part answer to that. The first part just takes us back to verse number 1. What was verse number 1? I urge you, therefore, brothers, in view of or because of the mercies of God, what's our part? Present ourselves, offer ourselves as living sacrifices. The first part of this, of how it's our part, what our part in this is, is that we need to be willing. We need to have a desire to be changed. A willingness to offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, saying, God, what I want in my life is what You want in my life. A willingness. The second thing that we need to, be, to do in order to carry out this command so that the work of God can be done in us and the process be working in us, well, the second thing is actually the next big point in the outline. It's the how. He has told us what we aren't to do. He tells us what we are to do. And next He tells us how we are to do it. The way we are to do this, He says, is by the renewal of your mind. He says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Renew is, simply means to be renovated, to be changed. The key to our growth, the key to our transformation is a renovation of our mind. As I said earlier, ever since sin came into the world, the, the thinking and the the Acting of people have been have been corrupted by sin. 
so has it been in us. Our own sin nature, our own uh, the culture around us, the world around us, all of it has influenced us and our thinking has been skewed. Our minds need a reset. Our thinking needs a reboot. We need to refresh the computer of our brains with the wisdom of God's truth and with the clarity of His perspective. How do we do that? How do we get a mind that is rehabbed, that is is renovated, that is renewed? Well, this text doesn't actually tell us specifically But I think the Scripture is pretty clear if we go all the way through Scripture. there's. I'm going to suggest three things this morning, how we renew our mind. The first is we renew our minds by inputting God's Word. Jesus said in John chapter 17, as He was speaking to the Father, He said, Your, that's your Word, that's God's Word, is truth. 2 Timothy 2.15, the Scriptures are called the Word of Truth. If the problem is that, the, that our thinking has been, been skewed, it's been messed up by lies, it's been messed up by deception, it's been messed up by corruption, it's been messed up by all these things, what we need is a dose of the truth. What we need is a dose of reality. What we need is the clarity of God's wisdom and perspective and truth and that is found in the Word of God. So the most important tool that we have in renewing our minds is this book. What do we need to do with it? We need to read it. Those who are growing, who are being changed As Jesus' followers are people who read the book, who read the Bible regularly, consistently, often. Not only do we need to read the Word of God, we also need to study it. We need to dig deeper into the Word of God to understand what it's saying. To not just it's not just magically reading words and the words just have some little you know not little mantras that are mindless. It's it's really understanding what is God saying. How does that apply to me? We get that as we study the Word together. That's why we make teaching the Word of God a big part of this gathering together as the body on Sunday mornings. It's why we offer Sunday school. In case you didn't know that, before this service every week, we have a time of Sunday school, a time where we gather, dig a little deeper into the Word of God. We offer various classes and they're excellent teachers. I recommend it highly. It's why we have Bible studies. We have men's Bible studies and ladies' Bible studies. We have uh, youth Bible studies and we have kids' Bible studies. We do that because it's important that we study the Word of God. We dig deep into it. It's why we have home groups meeting during the week. You gather in people's homes and you fellowship together and you open up the Scriptures and you study it together so we can grow through inputting the Word of God into our life. Not only should we read it and study it, we should memorize it. If you go through the book and you read and you look at any of the saints in Scripture, if you go through history and you look at the great pillars of the faith through the, through the history, what you discover is all of them quote Scripture often. They quote it 
because they've memorized it. That's why David says, Your word I've hidden in my heart so I might not sin against you. We need to to know it so that in those times we don't have the Scriptures available to us, we can still think about God's Word, which is really the fourth thing to do. We need to not only memorize it, we need to meditate on it. Think about it. That's all it means. Meditation isn't hung, you know, where you go mindless. That's, That's not biblical meditation. Biblical meditation engages the mind with the Word of God and asks, what does that mean? How do I apply that to my life? And then another way to input the Word of God into our life is learning from good teachers, whether they're good teachers here in the church or whether it's through KSIV, the local Christian radio station which has excellent teachers on it, whether it's reading other Bible studies, reading good Christian authors. There's a plethora of resources available to us. There's no excuse in our day and time not to be inputting the Word of God into our life Regularly, consistently, deeply. But there's another thing we need to do, another part of renewing our mind, and that is spending time in prayer. You cannot read the life of Jesus, study the life of Jesus, without noting that Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, God incarnate, devoted significant time to prayer. He prayed faithfully, regularly, deeply, Rising early in the morning, sometimes staying up all night. If Jesus needed to pray, goodness, don't we need it all the more? Scripture calls us to be people of prayer because we grow in Christ, in our relationship with Him. We grow and we change as we commune with the Father Pray privately. Pray with others. There is benefit in praying personally and privately. There's also benefit in gathering with others and spending time in prayer. Thirdly, in renewing our mind, not only input God's Word, not only pray, but thirdly, go on a diet. Now, I'm not talking about going on a food diet, though I could stand to do that, and some of you probably could too, about it, talking about going on a diet, not from physical food, but from the spiritual junk food that we tend to feast on. You know, the reason that I tend that I'm a little more portly than I should be is I love ice cream, I love donuts, I love cake, I love cookies. I love food, lots of food, good food. Food isn't all bad, but uh, a, a lot of the food that I don't like is more fattening than it should be. And we would consider it, at least a dietitian among you would look at it and say, that's junk food. Any of the rest of you like junk food? Okay, there's a few of you who admit it. Okay. That's in the physical realm. In the spiritual realm, there's a lot of junk food out there. It is anything, junk food is anything that is not, in the physical realm, it's anything that's not healthy and good for us. 
In the spiritual realm, junk food is anything we feed into our minds that isn't helping our minds to grow in relationship with the Father. It's not helping to, to produce godly qualities and godly wisdom and godly knowledge into our life. Anything that's not honoring to Him, anything that is not pleasing to Him, anything that is not holy and acceptable as we saw in verse 1, to God, that's spiritual junk food. And it's not all bad. There's plenty of it that really is bad. (laughs) Anything that's ungodly should just automatically be taken off the list. And that would probably count for, you know, 90% of TV and... (laughs) whole lot of the books and magazines and the Internet. But there's a lot of stuff that isn't just bad, it's just useless. It is real junk food. You know, a donut's not bad, but maybe it's not good. I don't know. I think they're wonderful, but that's... <laughs> you know, there's just a lot of trivial stuff that just consumes our time as we read, as we watch, as we listen. And if we're going to renew our minds, we need, to, we need to take stock of, am I filling my mind with junk? Either stuff that is harmful or stuff that just simply is worthless. Do I need to cut some of that out? Not only do we need to eliminate the junk food, but we maybe need to unplug. I know that many of you are this way because I am too. You know, we're always running around with this or with this or with some other screen or with something plugged in our ears or whatever. There's just, there's always noise. And whether it's, whether it's music or whether it's, it's, you know, whatever, it's just noise. There's nothing wrong with music. There's nothing per se. Some of it's junk and garbage. There's nothing wrong with TV. There's nothing wrong with noise. And But the reality is, if our life is filled with noise, we never have time to really listen and really think. We need to be able to, to have time to, that's quiet so that we can think, so that we can reflect. Some of us need to turn off the radio, the earbuds, put the, pull out the earbuds and we need some silence, some quiet in our life. Psalm 37.7 says, Be still before the Lord. Be quiet before the Lord. Another thing we need to do perhaps is perhaps you, like most of us, need to slow down. One of the greatest curses of our generation is busyness. We tend to live on overdrive. We have filled up our schedules and our lives with activities and events. We run from this to this to this to this to this to this. And generally what gets pushed off to the sides is our relationship with God, the things of God, those things get pushed to the side because they get crowded out by other things in our schedule. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. The word there, be still, means cease striving. Stop. Settle down. Slow down. Unplug. 
cut out the junk, and then let's be busy inputting the Word of God into our life. That's how we renew our minds. It raises a question as we look at this. We're to be a living sacrifice. We're not to be conformed to the world. We are to be transformed. We are to do that by renewing our mind. And the question comes up, why would I want to do that? If a sacrifice means it costs me something, it means up giving up my life the way I want to do it, the way I want to live it, and live my life for Jesus Christ, why in the world would I really want to do that? I mean, why shouldn't I live my life my way? Why shouldn't I live life on my terms? Why shouldn't I live life on with my goals and my dreams and my desires? Why shouldn't I do that after all? It is my life. And most of us would probably never say that out loud in church. But I bet that most of us in this room have at some point or other thought that. And there's probably a good many of us here today, a good number of us, who are living life that way right now. We can say, I get it. I know that Jesus said, follow me. I know that the Bible says I should live my life to, to serve Christ and I should live my life to follow Him, but... I don't want to do that, and I'm not doing that. And so the question comes, why should we want to? Well, the answer was in verse 1, in view of God's mercies based on all He's done and based on what's still to come, I should want to. But just in case that's not enough, there's one more thing here in this verse. And it's the fourth thing about this transformation, and it goes to the results. What happens when we do this? He says that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And it takes a little bit of looking at that to figure out what he's trying to say. Let me say that when he says that by testing, that what that means is, in other words, by testing, by, by the test of your experience. In, in other words, in your own experience, if you do this in your own experience, and he goes on, you may discern. Another way to translate is that you may discover or you may prove. And he goes on, what is the will of God? What's good and acceptable and perfect? So let me put all that together. What he's saying is, if you and I live this way, if we don't be conformed to the world, if we will be transformed by the renewing of our minds, what we will in our own experience discover is that God's will is good. God's will is not only good, it's acceptable. Not only is it acceptable, it's perfect. Let me just end with this. See, I'm 62 years old and I really find that hard to believe. I don't know what happened. Last week I was 20. And I only feel right now like I'm 22. All you old folks, you get that. Young people, hang in. Hang in here for a second. 62 years old. I've been in the, I've been in the ministry for about 40 of those years. And I've talked and met an awful lot of people. 62 years, I have never met one, not a single person, 
who has lived their life for Jesus Christ, who at the end of their life says, you know what? I made a mistake. I made the wrong choice. I wish I lived life for me instead of following Jesus. I haven't met one. haven't talked to one. I have talked to people at the end of their life and heard people with regrets. But always the regrets I've heard have been like this. I wish I'd followed Jesus when I was younger. I wish I followed Jesus more fully. But I've never heard one say, I wish I hadn't followed Jesus. I wish I'd taken a different path. Young people, if you're here this morning, I want you to understand that's the voice not only of this 62-year-old guy, but of hundreds of people I've known at the end of their life. That's what Paul is saying here. If you live life this way, at the end of it, you say, that was good. That was good. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this word this morning, this encouragement. We are to be growing Becoming like Jesus. That's your aim for us. And that is an awesome thing. Your Word says we don't know what it is we're going to be. We have little clues in your Word. But we know that we're going to, when Jesus appears, when He comes back, we're going to be changed. And it's going to be awesome. And it's going to be a bigger change than a caterpillar to a butterfly. May we not then shrink back, but may we embrace what it is You desire for us. And if that becomes our desire, we want to grow and be changed. We want to be like Jesus. So at the end of life, we, we, we realize that was awesome. Your will was good and it's perfect. And may the change in us be so different and so significant that people notice so that we have opportunity to share with folks we know of the difference that Jesus made in us and that He is making in us every day. And may that lead others to know and trust Jesus too. May we be followers of Jesus who are faithful to make followers. In His name we pray.